We'll turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning and study that passage that we read just a few moments ago. The title uh, of our time together this morning is simply this, Fighting for Greatness, Fighting for Greatness. And as we look through Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, it's it's my prayer that God would reveal to each of us individually what sort of greatness that it is that we're fighting for. I think if we're honest, um, at least if I'm honest, there are times in my life where my focus gets on the wrong thing. Anybody else be honest with me? And I fight for greatness that is not centered on God's kingdom, but it's centered on myself. And this can happen in so many ways, in so many areas. And so I pray this morning that as we look at the words of Christ and as we look at his example, uh, that we would glean from it what God desires for us to have so that we could live for the greatness of his name as we serve his kingdom. Let's pray again this morning. And as I pray, I ask that you would pray that God would speak to our hearts today uh, as he knows, in a way that he knows that we need it. God, as we approach your word today, I pray that we would become broken over the areas of our lives where we have convinced ourselves that we are whole. God, I pray that we would take an honest evaluation of of what it is that we're living for, what it is that we're striving for. And God, as you point things out to us through your word and through your spirit, I pray that we would relinquish those things to you so that we could fully live for the glory of your name. God, we thank you for the eternal salvation that you have provided through your son, Jesus. And I pray that that is what we would rest in as we make our way through this life. God, we thank you for the knowledge that you've given us, that nothing can take this away from us. And so since that's the case, God, I pray that we would live for you at all costs. May we not hold anything back, but may we give all for your sake, for your gospel, for your kingdom, so that others can know the truth that has changed our lives. God, work in us today as you see fit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Mark 8 through 10 is one of the longest continual passages in the New Testament that deals with the idea of discipleship. And in several places through these chapters, Christ has made it a point to drill into this idea of what it means to follow him in very specific ways. And The disciples, as they heard Jesus speak these things, were often confused. They were often um, unsure or unaware of the depths of what Christ was speaking about. But as we mentioned a few weeks ago, they eventually got it, right? And as we read in the book of Acts, we see that they did indeed turn the world upside down as they gave themselves fully to the person of Jesus Christ and the mission that he gave to them. Christ's desire in leading them through these conversations was so that he would shape them and mold them and remake them into his image and not the image that they desired in the flesh. We know that the disciples, as we've read through these passages, did not fully understand all that Christ was saying. And in fact, it seems 
in every one of these passages that when Christ does speak on the idea of discipleship or the life of a true follower, the, the disciples follow up in that conversation with some selfish remark of how their heart, and it, and it reveals how far their hearts were from Christ. Even in the passage before us today, as Christ outlines what will take place as they make their way to Jerusalem, we see that two of the disciples come up to Jesus, and it seems in other passages that their mother was actually leading the charge, and they come to Jesus with this request that they could sit on either side of him in the kingdom. As we think of of these grown men, we think of their mother accompanying them to Christ, it's almost comical, isn't it? But it does show us how, how far removed our hearts can become at times from where God desires them to be. It reveals the selfish ambitions that rise up within us and the the great lengths that we will go to to get what we want in this life. So the disciples were, were bold, but it was often about the wrong things. They were passionate, but their passion was leading them away from Christ and not towards Him. They were courageous, but it was driving a wedge rather than building a bridge. And as I read through these passages, I'm convicted about this area in my own life at times, where I become passionate about the wrong thing, or bold about the wrong thing, or courageous about the wrong thing, and all the while Christ is calling me back to himself. Jesus had already set his face towards Jerusalem, and if you don't know what that means, Luke tells us that when he did this, he was making his final journey to Jerusalem, where he would face the ultimate wrath of God as he hung upon a cross for the sins of the world. And as this statement is made in Luke 9, and as we see that transpire in Mark chapters 8 through 10, it seems that Jesus was moving forward with an intensity and with a passion that he had not had up until this point. As he talked about his death, this is in fact the third time in Mark where Jesus predicts this idea that he would be delivered, that he would be mocked, that he would be spit upon, that he would die, but also that he would rise again. And every time he spoke of this, the disciples seemed to get more and more confused. But we understand that Christ, every time he spoke of this, was doing so intentionally. Not to be dramatic, not to make much of what he was going to go through, but to call his disciples to understand his purpose in coming to this world in the first place. As in our day, the disciples were vying for position. Recognition and ranking were on their minds, and Christ was calling them to something better. And so the title of our message this morning is Fighting for the Top. But what we'll see is that Christ gives a different method to achieve greatness than seeking to be number one. As we walk in this world, may we follow our faithful leader, Jesus, on the road of suffering, for it's in suffering that we find the true measure of greatness as we understand more fully the person of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. The big idea this morning is this. What are you fighting for in your life? Christ compels us in this passage to war against the things that call us to pursue greatness on this earth. What are you fighting for in your life? 
What is it that Christ would compel you to fight against in your own heart, in your own flesh, as you think of making a name for yourself or becoming great in this life? What is it that Christ would call us to kill in this life so that we could understand His true greatness and understand the life that He has called us to? In the world, fighting for greatness or fighting for the top means achieving a better status, a better ranking, or a better position. But fighting for the top in the Christian life means laying down your dreams of greatness in the now so that we can serve the great one faithfully until he calls us home. And what we must understand is this, we cannot strive to make a name for ourselves and lift high the name of Christ simultaneously. It's not possible. And so Christ calls us to live with one objective. And the question that we must ask ourselves this morning is which objective are we living for? To make our name great or to make his name great? This morning I want to see three things in this passage that hopefully will help us understand or wrestle with this idea in a better way, fighting for the top or fighting for greatness. First thing we see in verses 32 through 34 is the suffering servant. Again, the Bible says this, and They were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. In the third day, he shall rise again. Certainly, if we wanted to see the depths of the suffering of Christ, we could turn to passages like Isaiah 53 and see a long love passage of Christians over the years. And in this passage, we would find in detail the sufferings of Christ that Christ would go through to be the payment for sin. He would be bruised. He would be beaten. He would be mocked. He would be spat upon. He would be rejected and falsely accused and tried. But we also understand that He would rise again after He died for our sins upon the cross. And so as Christ is leading His disciples to Jerusalem, to the very place that He knew that He would give His life, He does give them in full detail the things that He would experience in making his way to the cross, but he also gives them in full detail the idea of the hope that was waiting for them on the other side of the cross. And if Christ pulled his disciples together in this moment and said, guys, I'm going to be delivered up. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to try me, and I'm going to die. And he left it there. Then certainly the disciples would have moved forward in hopelessness, but he didn't leave it there, praise God. He reveals even before This ever took place, even while the disciples were struggling in their minds to comprehend what he said. He reveals for a third time now in the Gospel of Mark that he would die and he would rise again. And this suffering servant that we understand as Jesus, who is God in the flesh, didn't simply come to be a good example or a moral example or a kind teacher or a friend to those who didn't have friends became to be the payment for sin. And not just the sins of the disciples and not just the sins 
of those who lived in his time in history. But he came to be the payment for our sins, for the things that we have done wrong, for the things where we have gone astray. I love the song that we sang, Come Thou Found. I love the original version because it uses that word, those, the, that phrase, prone to wander. And I was thrilled when they threw that in the Christmas version as well. Because isn't that true? We're all prone to wander. If not with our flesh, at the very least in our minds. Prone to wander when it comes to trusting. Prone to wander when it comes to giving our all. Prone to wander when it comes to our own selfishness. And as Christ was relaying to the disciples what would happen in this moment, he calls them to understand by the end of this passage that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. But before he would ever die, we must understand that he would suffer greatly. And while we often only think of the suffering of Christ in the scene on the cross as he hung there suspended between heaven and earth, the reality is the suffering of Christ took place much before that event ever occurred. And with every step that Christ took towards Jerusalem, and with every, every hour that passed by in the days leading up to the day when he would die, the suffering that he experienced in an emotional and a mental capacity is more than we can even understand. And as we think about the suffering servant this morning, we understand that he is indeed our example and how we are called to live in this life. We must understand that Christ was not forced to go to the cross, but Christ went to the cross willingly on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. But can we also agree that there are things in life at times that we do willingly that are still very difficult? And so just because there was a great joy that was set before him in looking beyond the cross, we understand that the suffering that he faced, faced leading up to the cross was indeed great. And Christ is going to go into it in this passage. He talks about drinking the cup of God's wrath and being baptized with a baptism that the disciples couldn't even understand. And this imagery takes us back to the Old Testament as we think about the sacrificial system and the wrath or the cup of the wrath of God that was poured out on Christ is the cup that we deserve. And the baptism by fire, so to speak, that Christ experienced talks about the full engulfment of his life in suffering so that he could be the payment for the penalty of sin. And as we think about the suffering servant this morning, as we think about what he went through, as we think about all that he experienced, we must meditate on this reality that he did all of this to appease the wrath of God so that you and I could be forgiven. He did it with a heart of love to please the Father first and foremost, but also so that a door of hope could be opened for all who would believe in his name. And as he reiterates this idea of his suffering to the disciples for the third time, he wasn't being dramatic as a school kid would be in thinking of a test that was coming up in a few days, but he was sharing his heart with them so they could understand the depths of the suffering that he would face on the cross. As we think about Christ making his way to the cross, we understand ultimately that it was God who delivered him up. Certainly there was men involved in this scenario as God used them to bring about 
his eternal plan. And the, the guards captured him in the garden and they delivered him to be tried. And then the soldiers delivered him to be mocked and scourged and they delivered him to the cross. But we understand that in all the delivering, the ultimate deliverer was God. And the very God who called for a ransom for sin to be paid is the God who delivered up that ransom so that we could be forgiven. And friends, in that we rejoice. Because God is gracious. Because God gave up the thing that he loved the most so that we could be reconciled to him in a way that could never happen without him. And so Christ reveals in these verses that they would go to Jerusalem, that he would be delivered up by the chief priests and unto the scribes, that they would condemn him to death, that they would deliver him to the Gentiles, that they would mock him and they would scourge him and they would spit upon him and they would kill him. But he also reveals to us that on the third, on the third day he would rise again. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? This takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis when mankind sinned in the garden initially and the prophecy is given that one day, yes, the serpent would, would bruise the heel, but the, the Savior would what? He would crush the head of the serpent. And he did that through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. And as in the Christmas season, we think about the coming of Christ. We would do well to meditate on passages like this because it takes us beyond the cute scene of the baby in the cradle and it brings us to the Savior on the cross. But it also causes our minds to fast forward to the day when that Savior would come again and receive us unto himself so that where he is, there we can be also. The suffering of Christ. I love what John Phillips says about Christ's devotion to the cross. He says, the highway now that led straight toward the goal, Jerusalem, the city that habitually stoned the prophets and killed those whom God sent to it. The Lord knew what he could expect once he appeared in that den of lions. His earthly pilgrimage was drawing to a close. There seems to have been a new, obvious resolution and firmness and purpose about him. And as the Niagara River seems to quicken its pace and move forward with renewed force as it approaches the falls, so it was with the Lord. Those who followed him sensed it, and they were awed by it. And as Christ made his way to the cross, he didn't shy back as the days approached, but he moved forward with greater firmness. And for that, we can be thankful that he didn't move away from the sufferings that were coming upon him, but he went into them with full knowledge, with full fervency, knowing that this is the only way that humanity could ever find salvation. And so I pray this morning that as we think about the suffering servant, that we would remember that he suffered in our place, that he suffered for what we deserve, that he suffered so that we could be forgiven. And as we meditate on that, may it bring great joy to our hearts this Christmas season. So the suffering servant, secondly, we see the selfish disciples. In verses 35 through 41, the Bible continues and said, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Have your kids ever come to you in that way? Like with this presumptuous request, say, Mom and Dad, we, we just want you to say yes, right? What kind of parent just says yes when your kids come to you in that way? No, no good parent. 
He continues in verse 36, and the Bible says, And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? Now Christ knew. Christ knew the desire of their heart. He knew what it was they were going to request in that moment. And as we see often in Scripture, he doesn't ask for his benefit. He asks for their benefit. Because sometimes when people finally verbalize what is going on in their mind, they're quick to understand that, hey, that didn't sound as good as I thought it did when I was thinking about it in my mind. And so Christ is hopeful that this would be the outcome, but with full knowledge knew that this would not be the outcome. In verse 37, he says, They said unto him, Grant unto us, that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy glory. I imagine them there with big smiles on their faces, right? Not bowing in humility to a king who would sit on a throne, but thinking of themselves as co-equals to the one who would suffer for them so that they could be forgiven. And they come with this presumptuous request, let us sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you enter into your glory. Verse 38, Jesus continues the conversation. He says unto them, you know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with, all shall ye be baptized. But the sin on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is, shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. When the ten heard it, they became, began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith to them, you know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their great ones exercise authority upon them. The selfish disciples have you ever met someone who simply was not in touch with reality? Like the conversations they had, um, it wasn't that they were incoherent, it's just that they didn't apply to any situation at hand. It's like they weren't aware of their surroundings, they weren't understanding what was going on in the world, and they almost lived with these rose-colored glasses on, ignoring the problem that is before them in the moment, only talking about what was on their hearts in the here and now. Well, as this conversation takes place, that would describe for us James and John and likely their mother. And so as they're walking and Jesus declares to the disciples, hey guys, I want you to know that all these things are going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. All this, this, these trials are going to befall me, that, that they're going to do all these things to me, that, that I'm going to suffer, that they're going to hang me on a cross and that I'm going to die, but one day I'm going to rise again. And it seems that as soon as Christ finishes that statement... The disciples come up and say, hey, Jesus, we have a request, and we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask of you. It's a little odd, isn't it? It reveals to us, in part, the, the truth that they were not understanding what Christ was laying down for them. It reveals that their hearts were, in some ways, far from God, that they were so self-consumed and self-absorbed and self-focused that as Christ relayed to them in this somber moment that he would die on a cross, their first thought that came to their mind is, hey Jesus, when we enter your kingdom, can I sit on your right hand and I sit on your left hand? And they seem like selfish children who were more concerned with themselves than anybody else around them. And so Jesus responds to them as they ask 
we want you to do whatsoever we ask. Jesus says, what do you want? And they go into this idea of granting that they would sit on one side or the other when they entered into the kingdom. Now, a few things that we need to point out that the disciples did have in their minds. They understood that there was a kingdom that was coming. They didn't understand in full what that was. And so while we like to give them a hard time, the reality is we can't be so harsh on them because they had an earthly Christ in front of them. And so what would their minds have gone to? An earthly kingdom. And while we, from our perspective, understand that the kingdom is future and that it is spiritual and physical and that it's eternal, the disciples were only thinking in the here and in the now. And so we can't be too harsh on them But we also need to understand that Christ had relayed to them that this kingdom was future, that it wasn't something they were going to experience in their day, in their time. We also have to understand that that they understood that while there was a kingdom, they understood that Jesus was going to be a king. And that's a good thing as well, right? They understood that he would be seated on a throne, that he was who they should look to, though they didn't understand again the fullness of that. We understand that Jesus did tell them that they would sit on 12 thrones and they would judge the 12 tribes. And so while there's confusion in their hearts and minds, we have to understand that from their perspective, these things were very confusing because they didn't have the completed revelation of the word of God. But still, these requests or this request reveals that their hearts We're in the wrong place. And Jesus drills into this idea as they ask to sit on the right hand and on the left hand when they enter into glory. Jesus responds to them and says, you have no idea what you're asking for. You you don't understand the scope of the kingdom. You don't understand the scope of who I am. You don't understand my eternal purpose in coming. You don't understand anything at all. You have no clue what you ask. And then Jesus goes on to ask them a few questions. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And what's their response? We can. Jesus, we've done everything with you so far. James and and John, they, they saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They experienced the glory of God coming down and resting upon the person of Jesus Christ. They saw the miracles that were performed by Christ, but didn't we understand through Mark's gospel that they also performed miracles through the power of Christ? And so while they're saying we can, we understand that it's a little presumptuous to say that they can, but it again reveals that they did not understand what Christ was speaking about. And so Christ continues, and what does he say? Well, you will drink of the cup that I drink of. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to give positions of the seats on either side of me in my kingdom is not mine to give. Now again, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about here when he said they would face these things. They were all gung-ho saying, yes, Jesus, we can drink of that cup. Yes, Jesus, we can be baptized. And what they did not understand is that they would face severe torment and trial and agony when it came to following Christ. And we understand that James would go on to be the first martyr of the Christian church and John would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he would face immense suffering and torture and then finally be released from that only to die of natural causes later on in his life. And Jesus was revealing to them that yes, you are going to face 
great trials as you walk upon this earth. But instead of being selfish in your request, thinking of where you will be seated when that day comes, Jesus is calling their attention to this reality that the kingdom that he is going to establish is vastly different than anything they've ever understood in their lives. As we said, the way up in the kingdom is in reality the way down. To get high, you have to go low. To be great, you have to serve. The way is broad that leads to death, but the way is narrow that leads to life. And Christ is calling them to understand that they needed to rid themselves of their selfish desires if they were ever going to do anything for the sake of the kingdom. And if there's a message that the broader church needs in our world today, it's that we need to rid ourselves of our selfish desires if we're ever going to do anything for the sake of the kingdom. Then I need to rid myself of my selfish desires if I'm ever going to do anything for the sake of the kingdom. Well, as Christ continues talking, we understand that the disciples still didn't get it because as James and John heard this, they kind of walked away like the rich young ruler, sorrowing in their heart, and they made it their way back to the disciples, the other 10, and what does it tell us? That they were much displeased. Not because they annoyed Jesus with this question, not because of any other reason other than this, that they were jealous that they weren't a part of the conversation. They were jealous that they didn't think of it first. Imagine Peter. He was usually one of the inner three, right? It's always Peter, James, and John. And what do we have in this scenario? It's Peter and James. And what does that reveal? That the selfishness in our hearts causes us to break ties even with our closest of friends if we think there's something that we can get that we want before somebody else can get it. You ever been to a, a, a gathering where there's food and uh, maybe this is just me, I don't know. But you're eyeing that table and you're thinking, man, I don't know if there's enough for everybody. I better get in line now, right? I was talking to Brianna about the ladies' gathering and, and uh, Kayla made sourdough pretzels. And uh, I heard they were good and so I asked Brianna, I said, did you get one? She said, no, there was only one left so I didn't take it. I'm like, you and I are cut from different cloth. <laughs> if there's one left, I'm going to get mine, right? I, I'm going to experience everything that I want to experience. I'm going to have everything that I want to have. And isn't that how we live so often? That as we go through life, we're willing to make sacrifices as long as we gain something in the moment. We're willing to give something up as long as we get something in return. And that's the way that the disciples had been living, had been living with Christ all throughout his ministry. They were focused on themselves. They were worried about where they were going to set, what they were going to get for everything that they had given up, what it was going to cost them to actually follow Christ. And Christ is saying, you're thinking about it all wrong. It's not about what you can get. It's about what you can give. It's not about what you can become. It's about living out of what you have become because of the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about selfishly collecting all the goods and, and, and pleasures that this world has to offer so that you can live in comfort and ease. But Jesus would say it's about giving all those things up if that's what God calls you to do so that you can live in the fullness of the power of the Spirit and live in the fullness of what God will allow you to live in for the sake of the kingdom. And so the disciples are displeased. I imagine them going back and, and uh, they heard the conversation 
they heard what Jesus said, and instead of them being like, oh, I'm sorry, guys, that it doesn't seem like it's going to work out for you, but we're in this together, what do they say? We don't know, but we know they were displeased. They were disgruntled towards one another because they thought one was going to get an upper hand over the other person. And if you want to see that, maybe we should all just take a trip down to the nursery, and that's where you see that best, isn't it? where a kid has a toy and another kid wants the toy, and what do they do? They go and take the toy. Why? Because they deserve the toy. And why do they deserve the toy? Because they want the toy. And if we're honest, how, how many of us approach life in that very same way? That I only want what's good for me. I only want what's easy. I only want what's appealing to my flesh. I only want what is going to bring me ease and comfort in this life. And if there's any amount of suffering or discomfort or displeasure or hardness, then I'm going to pass that off to somebody else so that I can get what I want. Do you know where we often see this? We see it in our prayer lives. Instead of working through scenarios in our prayer life with God, we simply make requests while we diminish what God is seeking to teach us. Do you believe that God is in control? Raise your hand if you believe God is in control. Can I ask why then are we quick to pray when every trial comes into our lives? God, get me out of this thing. God, cause this thing to pass. I know that you can. God, make my life easier when our prayer should be, God, I don't know why I'm going through this trial. I don't know why I have this sickness or this disease or this heartache in my heart. I don't know why my life has become so complicated or chaotic. But God, whatever it is that you're trying to teach me, I pray that I would learn it with full obedience so that I can become a person who models Christ to the world. That I understand that my life is no longer about me and my desires and what my flesh craves and wants, but it's about living for your purposes and for your kingdom. And God, whatever that costs me in this life, I'm willing to go through. God, bring the trial and the pain and the suffering so that I can be made into your image. And while that should be our prayer life, what often is our prayer life? God, change it. God, fix it. God, remove it so that I can live with the most pleasure and enjoyment in the here and now and also gain all these things in the future. But what does Christ say? That suffering is a marker of those who are truly a part of the kingdom. And suffering with joy is a marker of those who truly understand the person of Christ and what he went through. And so it's not by accident that Christ decided to share with them as they made their way to Jerusalem about the suffering that he would face again. For I believe he knew the conversation that was coming. And as Christ gave the outline of what was going to take place as they made it to Jerusalem, he knew that the disciples would come with this selfish request saying, this is what we want. This is what we want to experience. This is what we want to have. And then Christ knew that he would turn the conversation again to show in the fullness of the why that he came and what he would accomplish through his coming. And so what do we learn from point number two? Don't be selfish, right? Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, don't be selfish, do it. Does that feel good? It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to push down what you desire so that 
you can experience the fullness of God. It doesn't feel good to say I'm not going to have this thing so that I can serve Christ more fully. But friend, that's the, the life that Christ has called us to. And as I said, while we like to give the disciples a hard time with their requests, I wonder if we were in the band of 12 and we saw two go to Christ and say, hey, can I sit on your right hand and my brother sit on your left? How many of us would have been displeased when the disciples made their way back to the larger group because we didn't think to ask the request before the others? So we see the suffering servant, we see the selfish disciples, and then finally this morning we see the surrender that we are called to. In verses 42 through 45, the Bible says, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Christ viewed the conversation happening between the disciples at this point, and he saw the, the look on their faces as James and John came back to the greater group, and he could see the tension that was rising within them. He doesn't let them fester in their tension, but he calls the group to himself, and he begins to speak to them in a way that they would understand. He says, you know how it is among the Gentiles or in the world. There are those who have power, and there are those who live under that power. It's the, the way with, with masters and slaves. It's the way with owners and employees. It's the way with managers and people who are a little lower when it comes to a level of ownership or leadership within a company or an organization. We all understand this. Even if you own your own business, you understand that because who do you pay taxes to? The government. And so there's always this ranking. There's always those who are in charge and there's always those who are subservient to those who are in charge. And what is Christ saying? Well, the world will look at it and say those who, in, who are in charge are the leaders. But what is Christ saying? That those who serve are the leaders. We look at it and say those who are the greatest get the greatest positions. They have the greatest authority. But Jesus is saying those who are the greatest are the servants. And if you want to be chiefest of all, then you have to be servant of all. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you may not be recognized by this world because you're humbling yourself so low. And that's again why John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And what did Jesus say? There's not a, a man greater who has been born of woman than John the Baptist but even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And we think of John the Baptist and we would set him up high and Christ says he is the least in the kingdom of God when it comes to greatness. And so I would ask us this morning, where do you think you're ranked in the kingdom of God? And before you let your mind wander, let's change the question. And ask, where should we desire to be ranked in the kingdom of God? As the humble, as the servant, as the one who does things that are unnoticed, but does them for the sake of the kingdom, 
as the one who serves in the uncomfortable so that God could be glorified, and the one who's willing to stay in a difficult opportunity even if your health and your life are at risk so that the world could know there's a Savior who loved them and died for them. This is why I love our missionary. Is anybody touched by the stories last, last week from the Beemans about the things that they experienced on the mission field? It's an emotional thing. But often as we sit in our chairs in the back of our minds, you know what we're saying? Good for them. That's not for me. I'm glad that they're willing to give their lives, but my place is right here where it's comfortable, where it's easy. But the Christian life was never meant to be comfortable or easy. It's meant to be hard. It's meant to be one where you kill yourself, right? And in killing yourself, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, that's when Jesus says you find what true life is. That's when you find your true identity. That's when you find your true purpose. So if in your Christian life, you're, you're trying to find ways of how you can make your life the easiest and the most comfortable, Jesus would rebuke that in us because that's not what we're called to. We're called to give our lives as we look at the example as he gave his life. Jesus says, you know how it is in the world, but look at verse number 43. He doesn't say, this isn't how it's supposed to be for some of you, or if you can work it into your schedule or give up a few things, then your life is going to look a little different. What does he say? It shall not be among you. You understand that the world is, is striving for greatness in the eyes of men, but that's not what we're called to. You know that the world is looking for opportunity of comfort and ease and, and blessing and enjoyment, but that's not what we're called to. We're to give our all so that we can become the least of these and serve the least of these for the sake of the kingdom. He says in verse 44, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And you know what Jesus is not saying? He's not saying if you're going to be the chiefest, then you have to serve yourself above all. But that's where we like to live. We like to live not in the tension of what I need to give up, but we like to live in the gray area of what can I keep so that I can maintain the life that I desire to have. Jesus calls us to be a servant, to serve in the areas that go unnoticed, to serve in the areas maybe even at times where we don't even want to serve. In a, in a very general way, can I ask you, in your church, where are you serving Christ? How are you serving the one who died for you? You say, well, you know, service in the church just isn't for me. Christ would say the opposite. Well, the church has hurt me. Who did Christ die for? Those who would hurt him the most. Christ went to the cross knowing full well that those whom he would die for would still turn their backs on him. 
He went to the cross knowing full well that they would not always live for Him. But He went selflessly to the cross so that we could be forgiven. And so I, I would ask again, where are you serving in your church? You say, I just don't know where to serve. Well, talk to Matt or I after the service and we can show you where to serve. We can show you openings. We can show you opportunities. That you can serve the least of these. That you can become the servant of all for the sake of the kingdom. And this is the surrender that we're called to. And then in verse 45, Christ puts the nail in the coffin, doesn't he? As he talks about the the chiefest, or being great means that you become the servant of all. What does he say? For even the Son of Man, this is the second time, uh, I believe in this passage, that we've seen Christ use this statement, the Son of Man. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you think back through our journeys through the Gospel of Mark, who was it that was always serving and not looking to be served? It is none other than the Savior, Jesus Christ. After he was baptized and he went into the wilderness and his ministry started, it was day after day after day of putting himself in uncomfortable situations so that he could serve the least of these and set for us an example to follow. Who was it that early in the morning and late at night found himself surrounded by crowds and crowds of people healing them and offering them hope that that otherwise would have had no hope? It is the person of Jesus Christ. And who is it that said he would go to the cross and die to give his life as a ransom for many? It is Jesus. So if you look around and say, well, I'm doing better than they are, not quite as good as them, but if I work a little harder than I can, you're looking to the wrong person. Because it's not me or somebody else that you look to to gauge your, your loyalty to Christ. It's Christ. It's not my efforts that you look at and say, well, if I do a little more than Dan, then that will show I'm a little more invested in the kingdom. We look to Christ. Why? Because he is the most invested. He gave it all. Why? So that he could be a ransom for many. So that through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, all who come to him by faith would be saved and reconciled to a holy and just God. And this is what we're called to. This is his desire for us. If you've ever wondered what God desires out of you in the Christian life, then read Mark 8 through 10 over and over and over again until it sticks in your mind. He's called us to be servants, not leaders. And who is it that would go on from this point in a few days to bend down and wash the disciples' feet? It was Jesus. And why did he do that? Because he wanted to show them one last time what it looked like to be great in the kingdom of God. He wanted to show them one last time what it meant to serve the kingdom with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 11 through 15. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus 
who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so who is it that Paul looked to when it came to looking for an example to model his life after? It was Christ. And friend, who is it that we're looking to? Who is it that we're modeling our lives after? Is it Christ? Or have we made a God out of our own desires and convinced ourselves that as long as we get these things, then Christ is worth serving? Friend, if that's our attitude, we should probably ask of whether or not we're even in the kingdom to begin with. This is the surrender we're called to. This is the desire of God for us. This is what Christ was calling his disciples to as they made their way to Jerusalem. And as I said a few moments ago, we understand that though they didn't get it now, one day they did get it and they were accused of turning the world upside down. And I wonder today if this was the last Sunday that Northside was in existence. Would the greater St. Albans community, greater Franklin County, Chittenden County, would they even know that Northside's not a church anymore? Would they even know? When we live with humility, when we live with desire to be the least of these, the world will take notice, not of who we are, but they'll take notice of who our Savior is. So as we think about this call to surrender, it's my desire that we would examine our own hearts and lives to see where we're surrendered, but also to see how we need to surrender. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in an argument, we don't call them arguments at our house, they're loud conversations. <laughs> if you've ever been in a loud conversation with your significant other or somebody close to you, and an accusation is made against you that's true, what are we quick to do? We're quick to elevate all the things that we do, all the things that are not wrong, all the things that we do appropriately while not acknowledging the truth that was brought up against us. Friend, if, if that's our attitude towards the Spirit of God working in our lives, can we repent of that today? If God is saying to you today, you know this is what I'm asking you. You know this is what I'm calling you to. You know this is what I desire for you. And you say, yeah, but God, think of all the things I am doing. Think of all the things I've attributed to the kingdom. Think of the way that I am serving you. God's not going to diminish those things. In fact, anything we do for the sake of the kingdom will be rewarded when we get to heaven. But shouldn't our desire be to do all for the sake of the kingdom? Not do what's easy and not do what's convenient, but to do all. That starts inside of us and it works its way out. It changes our attitude towards the trials that we face. It changes those, our attitude towards those 
who are a trial in our lives. That we look at ourselves as a servant. The servant's never above his master. A servant doesn't get to dictate or determine what they get to do based on their feelings. A servant serves. And friend, that's what we're called to today, to be surrendered servants for the sake of the kingdom. And so in reality, the fight for the top in, our li- in the lives of believers is a fight against the things that are calling us to greatness in this life. A fight, the fight for greatness in the life of a believer is to fight against not those who are around us, but is to fight the battle that rages within us. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 7? Things I want to do. Those are the struggles. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I I continually find myself doing. I'm a servant to sin instead of being a servant to Christ. There's debate over that passage of many want to say that it, it was Paul expressing his life before he was saved, speaking of trying to earn greatness with God through his own efforts and through his own works. I don't believe that's true. I think Paul's relaying the battle that we all fight each and every day. The things I know I should do are the very things I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do are the very things I find myself doing over and over and over again. Oh, wretched man, is there any hope for me? And what does he say? Praise God, there is hope through the person of Jesus Christ. And so in your struggle today, in my struggle today, may we relinquish those things to the person of Christ so that we can become the least of these in the kingdom of God, understanding that God never overlooks our service, but that He rewards it in His time and in His way. And may we desire today not to be rewarded in this life, but to use what God calls us to, to serve Him in ways that we would never have opportunity otherwise so that we can be great in the kingdom. And so we don't seek honor, but we seek to honor Christ. We don't fight for position, but we fight to keep Christ in the position of king in our lives. We don't look to how we can climb over others to get what we want, but we look to how we can serve others in being like Christ. We don't look to how we can get out of every trial, but rather we look to find what God is teaching us in the trials of life that we face so that we can be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The disciples had it wrong. But may we see today where we have it wrong. May we recognize in our own lives where we have gotten things out of order and by the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit, may we rebuild in a way that brings glory to God. Friend, if you're here today and this Christ that we've spoken of is foreign to you, I want to reiterate what verse 45 says again. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know who the many are? Well, it's you. Christ came to give his life 
as a ransom and as a sacrifice for all who would believe in him, that they would find hope in his name, not through their efforts, not through their good works, not through their baptism or their church attendance or their kindness to those around them, but that we would find hope in him alone. His life paid the ransom that God demanded so that we could be forgiven. And that's the beautiful thing of the gospel, that the one who demands the ransom is the one who gives the ransom. That he's not looking to us to figure it out, but he has it figured out. If we will come to him by faith, then we can be forgiven. And for the Christians as we close, this is the life that we're called to. And the faster we embrace it, the faster we'll find true peace in this life and as we look to the life to come. So where are you in the fight for greatness? May we humble ourselves before the person of Christ. May we yield to the Spirit of God. May we walk through the trials that He brings us to, knowing full well that these trials will not take what God has given to us from us, but it only leads us to greatness on the other side. God, we ask this morning that as we've looked at your word, that you would continue to work in our hearts today in this area of fighting for greatness. And God, sometimes the fight for greatness isn't even that we want to be recognized or elevated above other people. Sometimes the fight for greatness is internal and we think, why am I going through this hardship when I don't deserve it? Help us to remember today that what we deserve is separation from you. But what you've given us is eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. God, work in our hearts. May we be servants. And may we remember that the servant is never, never elevated above the master. May we have in us the mind that Christ had in him. May we serve your name and your kingdom and whatever opportunities and trials you bring into our lives until you call us home, and may we do it with great joy. We thank you. We ask, God, that you would work in our hearts now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you have questions about Christ and how he came